Please join me in a spirit of prayer. Spirit of an icy, cold winter morning and of a still new year, we give thanks for this community that nourishes and uplifts us. Today, we think of those who have left us, of friends who cannot be present in body but are here in spirit, and of all those who need us. Our hearts go out to people in need everywhere, and particularly the immigrants and asylum seekers who are being held in detention facilities with little or no contact to the outside world. We bless the people of Irate and First Friends who work tirelessly to ease the suffering of those detainees by visiting them and helping them with their needs. We will now observe a moment of silence. Amen. Our ancient reading is by Lin Qi, a Chinese Zen Buddhist master from the 9th century CE. When it's time to get dressed, put on your clothes. When you must walk, then walk. When you must sit, then sit. Just be your ordinary self in ordinary life, unconcerned in seeking for Buddhahood. When you're tired, lie down. The fool will laugh at you, but the wise man will understand. Our modern reading is The Invitation by Canadian author Oriah Mountain Dreamer. It doesn't interest me what you do for a living. I want to know what you ache for and if you dare to dream of meeting your heart's longing. It doesn't interest me how old you are. I want to know if you will risk looking like a fool for love, for your dream, for the adventure of being alive. It doesn't interest me what planets are squaring your moon. I want to know if you have touched the center of your own sorrow, if you have been opened by life's betrayals, or have become shriveled and closed from fear of further pain. I want to know if you can sit with pain, mine or your own, without moving to hide it, or fade it, or fix it. I want to know if you can be with joy, mine or your own, if you can dance with wildness and let the ecstasy fill you to the tips of your fingers and toes without cautioning us to be careful, be realistic, remember the limitations of being human. It doesn't interest me if the story you are telling me is true. I want to know if you can disappoint another to be true to yourself, if you can bear the accusation of betrayal and not betray your own soul, if you can be faithless and therefore trustworthy. I want to know if you can see beauty, even when it's not pretty, every day, 
and if you can source your own life from its presence. I want to know if you can live with failure, yours and mine, and still stand at the edge of the lake and shout to the silver of the full moon, yes! It doesn't interest me to know where you live or how much money you have. I want to know if you can get up after the night of grief and despair, weary and bruised to the bone, and do what needs to be done to feed the children. It doesn't interest me who you know or how you came to be here. I want to know if you will stand in the center of the fire with me and not shrink back. It doesn't interest me where or what or with whom you have studied. I want to know what sustains you from the inside when all else fails, falls away. I want to know if you can be alone with yourself and if you truly like the company you keep in the empty moments. A wise woman once told me that married couples fight about three things. Children, money, and packing the suitcases for their vacations. At that point in my life, I was not anywhere close to being married or having children, but I did know about the difficulties involving luggage. For a long time, I stuffed way too many things in my suitcases. Whether I was moving to Paris after college or going to South America to visit a friend for a couple of weeks or just going on a quick weekend getaway in another town, I would invariably end up cursing myself for having brought way too many clothes that were not right for the weather and books that I didn't have time to read and other items that I could have easily done without for a while or even for good. Any of you can relate to this? Yeah, there's a few people here. Um, I had decided at some point that I would be more clever than the average person who might get into situations like running out of her favorite shampoo while away from home. I would outsmart everyone, even myself, through the simple trick of providing backup. So I packed backup socks and backup underwear, backup t-shirts, backup dress shirts and backup ties, backup shoes, backup reading material, backup batteries for the camera, backup photocopies of my passport and my driver's license, backup pens and backup paper. And because I tend to do things very thoroughly, sometimes I would also bring backup for the backup. And of course, despite being so overprepared and lugging heavy bags, I would still find myself in circumstances where I'd be on an intercontinental flight without a neck pillow or on a heavily air-conditioned bus without a long-sleeved shirt or in a rented vacation home without my favorite vegetable knife or on a beach without a frisbee. No matter how hard I tried to think of everything that could possibly happen, life still managed to throw surprises my way. It slowly dawned on me that there was a lesson here because I was also carrying a lot of baggage within me. I gradually recognized that I had things to get rid of, physical items, but also psychological issues. So I began clearing out my closets and saying goodbye to things I didn't need anymore, clothes and books and souvenirs, 
playbills, posters, and so on. And many of these were still in good condition, and I still enjoyed looking at them, but they were no longer important enough to keep them in my life. And by the same token, I also began to let go of habits that had outlived, outlived their purpose. For example, the need to control everything, or to always be right, or the tendency to brood about missed opportunities in the past instead of focusing on new ones in the future. And each of these resolutions to throw something away was difficult because it always brought some discomfort with it. But the most pain I experienced had to do with letting go of people. I realized that I was still holding on to some relationships even though they had run their course and were no longer bringing me joy. There was one guy I had known since middle school who had been my best friend for a long time, but a situation where I was not honest with him revealed the big rift that had developed between us over the years, and he wouldn't forgive me. And despite my best efforts to reach out to him and make up for my mistake, there was nothing coming back from him. And the friendship was dead. And then, of course, there were always my irrational hopes of getting back together with an ex-girlfriend, regardless of the fact that she had already married somebody else. So. If I wanted to live in the present, I had to learn to move on. The 19th century English author, Geraldine Jewsbury, was speaking of this kind of conflict when she wrote, some of these fine days, I swear, I'll throw away all my heavy luggage in the shape of hopes and expectations and walk the rest of the way with free limbs. Here's what the Italian writer Cesare Pavese had to say on the subject. If you wish to travel far and fast, travel light. Take off all your envies, jealousies, unforgiveness, selfishness, and fears. The Irishman George Bernard Shaw wrote, I dislike feeling at home when I'm abroad. Of course, he wasn't opposed to gradually becoming more familiar with foreign places and people, even to the point of feeling very comfortable with new friends and surroundings. What he meant was that if we take too many of our familiar knickknacks and habits with us so that we can go someplace and set everything up as if we were still back home, we miss out on the experience of adapting ourselves to unfamiliar ways of living and thinking, and the personal growth that comes from having our own preconceived notions challenged and expanded. We're all guilty of this to some degree. I have lived in the United States for over 15 years, but when I go to or eat in a restaurant here, my first question to the waiter is still the same. Do you have any German beers? In my defense, I've tried many American beers, and there are some really great wines from California. The clip that you saw a few minutes ago is the opening scene of the movie The Darjeeling Limited. It tells the story of uh, three American brothers in their 30s who travel through India together on a quest to find themselves and mend their family ties. They haven't seen each other since their father's funeral, and there's a lot of distrust and unprocessed resentment between them. Each of them tries to feel better by getting something, and all three attempts fail. One of the brothers wants to get his shoes cleaned, but ends up having one of his loafers stolen by the shoeshine boy. 
The second one buys a snake and brings it back to the train where it escapes from its container. And the third one has a fling with the train stewardess and he thinks it could, could lead to more, but she's not interested in a relationship with him. Eventually, the three of them are kicked off the train for causing too much trouble and they continue their journey on foot and come across three boys who are trying to cross a river and end up falling into the water. The brothers jump in to save them, but one of the kids doesn't survive. Together, they all go back to the village where their boys' families live. And the Americans are welcomed by the locals, but nobody speaks any English. They attend the boys' funeral before they travel on. Next, the three brothers visit their mother, who lives in a spiritual community in India. She's a nun. And she had advised them not to come at this time, but they go and meet her anyway. Although she seems happy to see them, the next morning they find that she has left without telling them where to find her. The movie maintains a humorous tone while telling these harrowing stories. It's a delicate balance, but it doesn't seem to add up to very much in terms of a spiritual journey until the end of the film. In the final scene, which kind of uh, brackets the story and... and uh, balances out that opening scene that we saw, uh, the three brothers all run uh, for a train together. They're trying to catch it, just as we did uh, see one of the brothers in the opening scene, and they still have their luggage with them. And they run and run and run, and one of them says, and, and there's even three Indian porters behind them carrying, uh, carrying more bags. And one of the brothers says, the bags aren't going to make it. And one of them just flings aside his luggage, and then he jumps on the train. And then the two others follow suit. And they just watch their suitcases on the platform, and the porters with their other luggage disappear in the distance. So that's the lesson. Get rid of your baggage, and you're free to move on with your life. Be like the swamis, the, the holy men of India who have nothing and live on what people give them as alms, right? Well, yes. I could have written this sermon by hand. It would have taken a lot longer, but I didn't need to do it on a computer. We didn't have to see that movie clip, although I'm pretty sure that watching it was a better experience for you than listening to my verbal description of the other one. We can reduce our needs to their essence and make do with far less than we have. And yet, if we apply this principle to everything, our habits, our friends, as well as our material possessions, if we get rid of everything and everybody that we don't absolutely need, life becomes pretty dull. And I happen to know for a fact that many of the people in this, many people in this room are not fans of dullness. How then do we decide what to keep and what to discard? I faced this question in my life a number of years ago when, in addition to working as a freelance musician and the manager of an organic food store, I decided to go back to school and get a degree in psychology. I was really excited about the prospect of studying Freud and Jung and Fritz Perls and Virginia Satir and meeting a lot of new and interesting people. Within a few weeks, though, I recognized that I was spreading myself way too thin. I was constantly rushing from one place to the next, and I barely had any time for interacting with the people I cared about or even taking care of my two cats. I felt inadequately prepared for most of my classes and my gigs, and I was generally dissatisfied. 
this was not how I had imagined my life to be. I realized that I could not cram an infinite amount of items into my schedule. And that part of growing up meant recognizing and accepting my own limitations. Still, it was hard to let go because I had always thought that the people who really knew what they wanted in life and pursued it simply didn't have that many options. I figured that it was difficult for me to decide on a path because I just had more diverse talents than most people. It took me a long time to admit that maybe I was not that unique. The truth was that being active in several areas at the same time had always given me an excuse for not being at the very top of my game. I was not a great pianist because great pianists have to practice eight hours a day, and I didn't have eight hours a day because I was also a composer. But I wasn't a great composer because I was also a vocal coach, and besides, I wasn't just active in music, I was also working in organic food retail. But I wasn't an expert in that either because what I really was interested in was psychology and communication and so forth and so on. If I sharpened my focus and committed to something, that meant I was actually putting myself on the line and offering a part of me to the world to judge. And that was a scary thought. I want to read you a quote from a novel that I randomly picked up at a flea market one day. It uh, was a very beat-up paperback from an author I'd never heard of, and it had a weird title. The book was Even Cowgirls Get the Blues by Tom Robbins. Here's the quote. It doesn't matter what activity anyone chooses. If you take any activity, any art, any discipline, any skill, take it and push it as far as it will go, push it beyond where it has ever been before, push it to the wildest edge of edges, then you force it into the realm of magic. And it doesn't matter what it is you select, because when it has been pushed far enough, it contains everything else. I'm not, I'm not talking about specialization. To specialize is to brush one tooth. When a person specializes, he channels all of his energies through one narrow conduit. He knows one thing extremely well, and is ignorant of almost everything else. That's not it. That's tame and insular and severely limiting. I'm talking about taking one thing, however trivial and mundane, to such extremes that you illuminate its relationships to all other things, and then taking it a little bit further to that point of cosmic impact where it becomes all other things. Let's stop worrying about being well-rounded. Let's bring the one thing that is essential to who we are and what we do. It will probably fit into a purse or an inside pocket. Once we've tossed aside the suitcases that we don't need and jumped on the train of life, we will find the people who, we, who need what we have to bring and who have what we need. The trip will probably be a lot easier and also a lot more fun. May it be so. W.E.B. Dubois wrote, Now is the accepted time. Not tomorrow, not some more convenient season.
It is today that our best work can be done, and not some future day or future year. It is today that we fit ourselves for the greater usefulness of tomorrow. Today is the seed time. Now are the hours of work, and tomorrow comes the harvest and playtime. So may the prayers of our hearts and the songs of our lips shared in this holy hour of worship be with us now in all the days to come. <laughs>